Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. There's the truth, and there are facts, and there's empirical evidence. That's truth. Neutrality is often confused by people for objectivity. People sometimes think that our golden rule, which is objectivity, means neutrality. It does not. That's Christiane Amanpour. She's the chief international anchor for CNN and host of CNN's nightly interview program, Amanpour. She also hosts another eponymous show, Christiane Amanpour, Sex and Love Around the World. I speak with her about the difference between truthful and neutral, strategies for interviewing a dictator, and why the late Anthony Bourdain once called her a badass. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, stay tuned listeners. As many of you know, March 19th is a special day for me. It marks the publication of my first book, Doing Justice. And what better way to celebrate than with the first cafe event of 2019, a live taping of Stay Tuned at NYU's Skirball Theater. You can go to cafe.com slash tour right now for tickets. And everyone gets a personally signed copy of Doing Justice. At prior live shows, you might have seen me welcome guests like Hassan Minaj, Jeffrey Tubin, and Kumail Nanjiani. This time, I'll be in the hot seat with CBS This Morning co-host Biana Golodriga. As always, I'll also be answering your questions about the latest news. So we hope you'll join us to celebrate the release of my book, Doing Justice, on March 19th in New York City. Head to cafe.com slash tour, that's T-O-U-R, for tickets. I hope to see you there. For decades, whenever people would talk about technology, they would talk about things like graphics chips and memory slots. But today, technology rules everything. From the way we work, to the way we live, to the way we buy. And you can't talk about tech without the powerful people who make it. That's what Kara Swisher does best. On her podcast, Recode Decode, Kara sits down with the world's most influential people and hosts candid conversations about their big ideas and how they're changing our world. Previous guests include Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Hillary Clinton, and even Anthony Scaramucci. So what are you waiting for? The name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, who was a guest on this program just a few weeks ago. And you should subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Okay, let's get to your questions. Hey, Preet. This is Colin from Seattle, Washington. 
I have a question about the recent filing from 16 states to sue President Trump over the border wall. Uh, can you explain to what extent it's important that multiple instead of single states are concurrently suing the president and on what grounds non-borderline states have or why my state, Washington, isn't? Thanks for everything. You're my favorite podcast. Love the show. Hey, Colin, thanks for your question. Um, you know, Ann Milgram and I discussed this at great length on the Insider Podcast, but just to sort of quickly summarize and to answer your question, it doesn't matter a whole lot whether it's 16 states who sue or three states or, you know, 35 states. I suppose part of it is to impress upon a court that there are many, many jurisdictions that think there's a problem with the declaration of the national emergency and there's harm that can be felt in many different communities. I think you're going to see a lot more suits as well. Um, and some of the people who might have standing and maybe the best case to make for standing are folks who will be subject to eminent domain proceedings, which is a process by which the government can seize their land and they have to go through a rigorous process. And sometimes that kind of litigation can take a very, very long time. You know, overall, as I think lots of people have concluded, the emergency is not really an emergency. But as a legal matter, I think we think about the national emergency power in sort of layman's terms. But the statute that confers on the president, dating back to the mid-1970s, the power to declare a national emergency doesn't really do a decent job of defining what an emergency is. In fact, the statute doesn't even define emergency. So even though it is true that Donald Trump seems to have undermined his argument about an emergency, as ordinary people understand that word, by saying, among other things, uh, that he didn't have to do this, that he just wanted to speed it up, and also engaging us in a 35-day government shutdown for no reason, allowing Congress to do nothing about building a wall for two years, knowing the fact that border crossings are at a low over the last number of years, that the ordinary understanding of emergency seems to suggest it's not an emergency at all. On the other hand, emergencies get declared all the time. I think by the latest count, presidents since the mid-1970s have declared national emergencies under the same statutory structure about 59 times, mostly in circumstances where the president wants to impose sanctions on some party somewhere in the world. The difference between what the president has done here and all the other 59, and I commend to your attention an interview by Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday with White House advisor Stephen Miller, because he made this point very effectively. The difference between this case and prior cases is that in no prior case did the president do a deliberate end run around Congress. In other words, in the instant case, the president asked Congress to give him money for a border wall. Congress as a whole deliberately said no, and now he's going around them to try to fund the border wall from different pots of money that the government may or may not have. That's what makes this different. I don't know at the end of the day when this winds its way up to the Supreme Court, given the Supreme Court's makeup, that he'll be denied the ability to have done this. I tend to have my doubts. But largely, I think, with so many things with respect to Donald Trump, I don't know how much he cares about building the actual wall. I think he cares more about having the fight. I think he cares more about saving face. I think this was the only way, as Ann and I discussed weeks and weeks ago, you know, back in, at the end of 2018, the face-saving way, although it carries a lot of risk as well, especially on the part of, you know, some conservatives who still believe in the old-fashioned principle of limited government, that given that Congress wasn't going to give him what he wanted, this was his out. And whether or not it gets tied up in litigation, as it probably will be for a long time, doesn't so much matter. So I think even more important, ultimately, than the legal battle will be the political one. And we'll see how it plays out over the next number of days, where Congress can, by joint resolution, reject the declaration of a national emergency, and then the president can veto it. And then we'll see what happens. But we're not, we're not done with the story, but we're also not anywhere near 
the time when a wall will start to be built. Hi, Preet and team. I have a question for you. Um, my name is Liz, and I'm calling from Atlanta. I wanted to ask you about Paul Manafort and his plea deal and that getting rescinded. He seemed to have a pretty sweet deal with a lot of consequences potentially stacked up against him that hang in the balance of him cooperating with this plea deal. Why in the world would someone knowingly make false statements and do all of the shenanigans that he was doing from jail? And why do you think it is that he is doing this? Is My, my first thought is maybe that's just inherent to his nature of, of perhaps he's just an idiot. Uh, thanks a lot and keep up the great work. Thanks. Bye. Liz, you raised once again the age-old question, not just about criminal law and procedure and courtroom conduct, but human nature. You know, I, I've been doing this kind of work for a long time, and it's hard, depending on the person, to pick a particular reason why someone does something that's so self-destructive. I mean, consider why he committed the crimes in the first place. People who have money and who are privileged, and we prosecuted many of them. You know, I would often say, you know, what kind of a person has a billion dollars, literally has a billion dollars? and commits a crime to get a few million more. And yet there are people who do that all the time. And sometimes actually defense lawyers will attempt to use that common sense principle as a defense and say, well, he didn't do it. And one of the reasons you know he didn't do it is it would be too stupid for him to do it. And he's a smart man, but it doesn't always work out that way. You know, famous Hollywood celebrities sometimes shoplift and billionaires sometimes commit crimes. And people like Paul Manafort, who are otherwise intelligent, educated people, do things that harm themselves in bewildering ways. And that's, I think, what happened here. Is he an idiot? Yeah, quite possibly, uh, even though he might be competent in some other areas. It also may be true that there's some things he just didn't feel comfortable telling the truth about. You know, there's some people who are fraudsters. This is not always the case. But fraudsters in particular, who have time and time again scammed people and gotten out of binds by being able to talk themselves out of a jam, Sometimes think, well, you know what, it's in my interests after having been convicted at trial like Manafort was to now cooperate, you know, take door number two and sort of thread the needle and tell the truth about some things, tell falsehoods about other things and not get caught. It's remarkable to me, though, that someone like this, after having been beaten time and time again, both with respect to his bail status and then also with respect to the trial that proved him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt on a number of counts, that he continued to think he could get away with something. He's been proven wrong, and like a lot of other people, he's going to suffer the consequences for that. This question comes in the form of a tweet from Mark Piskowitz, who says, Hi, Preet. I'm sure you're getting flooded by this question, but what is your reaction to this New York Times story? And Mark is referring to the New York Times story that posted on Tuesday afternoon, whose headline is Intimidation, Pressure, and Humiliation, Inside Trump's Two-Year War on the Investigations Encircling Him. And it's written by a host of respectable and notable New York Times reporters, Mark Mazzetti, Maggie Haberman, Nicholas Fandos, and Michael Schmidt. And I'll just read the first paragraph of the article, and that's what I'll comment on, because it hits closest to home. And the lead of the article says, As federal prosecutors in Manhattan gathered evidence late last year about President Trump's role in silencing women with hush payments during the 2016 campaign, Mr. Trump called Matthew G. Whitaker, his newly installed attorney general, with a question. He asked whether Jeffrey S. Berman, the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York and a Trump ally, could be put in charge of the widening investigation, according to several American officials with direct knowledge of the call. And then the article goes on at great length, it's almost like a New Yorker-length article, to talk about all the ways in which 
Donald Trump, when feeling cornered or thinking that investigations were touching upon him or a business interest or a business associate or a family member, does things that are inappropriate, improper, to try to take the heat off himself. We've had examples of this over time. Jim Comey's testimony that Trump asked him to maybe lay off of the Michael Flynn case, and there are other examples as well. And this gives you kind of a bird's eye view into what we've come to expect, but with new details. And one of those new details is this conversation that I just described to you, according to the New York Times, where Donald Trump called Matthew Whitaker to ask him about whether or not Jeffrey Berman could unrecuse himself. And by way of background, you may recall that I used to be the U.S. attorney in the Southern District, and then I was followed by June Kim, my deputy, and then Jeffrey Berman, who was interviewed personally by the president in a very odd a very odd, unorthodox, and unusual move, became the United States attorney. And according to reporting, and I think some of his own comments, in consultation with the Justice Department's ethics officials in Washington, recused himself from the Michael Cohen and other matters that might impinge on the president, presumably because he was interviewed by the president and he was appointed by the president, and there may be other entanglements. I, I think, by the way, as a matter of fairness, the one quibble I have with the article, even without knowing more, is the characterization of Jeff Berman as a Donald Trump ally. I don't know what ally means. I don't know that he ever campaigned with him. I don't know that he's had enough interaction to be called an ally. So I think that might be a little bit unfair. But in any event, he recused himself, and the case uh, with respect to Michael Cohen and other matters was taken over by the very competent and expert lawyer, Robert Kuzami, who I've known a long time, former colleague and a friend of mine. The very fact that Donald Trump thinks once again that Recusing yourself from something, if you can be considered a reliable person, indicates his mindset. It indicates that he doesn't like the investigations. It indicates at least some willingness to interfere with the process of independent rule of law and administration and enforcement of the law. And that's something that every president should stay away from. Uh, it also brings to mind the series of phone calls that Donald Trump made to me, first as president-elect and then as president himself. And you'll recall that the last time he called me, I didn't return the call because I thought it was inappropriate. And I didn't know what he was going to say to me. And then 22 hours later, I was asked to resign. And the more time that goes by and the more stories like this that I read, it becomes more and more clear to me that he's in the business of cultivating people who he thinks will be able to help him and turning to people who he thinks are already his allies to help him and get him out of trouble, which when you're talking about law enforcement is inappropriate. So I don't think even though he didn't say anything inappropriate to me in the various calls that he made, oddly circumventing the attorney general, that he was calling to talk about the weather. That over time, he thought to himself, well, if I have a person in the Southern District of New York at the head of that office, uh, which covers the district that includes my businesses, that includes my family's interests, that includes my personal properties, that's a good thing for me. So look, I, th I think the attempt is terrible, part of a pattern. You know, if it was isolated, I would think you know, maybe it was more innocuous. Now bear in mind also, in fairness to Donald Trump, the article itself does not say that Trump ordered Whitaker to change the leadership in the U.S. Attorney's Office with respect to the Michael Cohen case. It says he asked the question. So I always wonder when I see reporting like this, what were the actual words used? Obviously, the most damning would be if he told him to do a thing and Matt Whitaker refused. That tells you more about what's in Donald Trump's mind. I suppose in an isolated case, the mere asking of the question hey, why can't Jeff Berman end his recusal, you know, is a little bit more innocent and doesn't rise to the level of, of obstruction. But we all know in life that someone doesn't have to give a direct instruction 
to make the meaning clear. The famous, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? So I don't know the context. Nothing came of it. It seems, whatever you think of Matt Whitaker, the reporting also indicates that he didn't do anything about it. He didn't try to change the leadership structure at the Southern District of New York. The question has also been raised whether Matt Whitaker in some way could be subject to a perjury prosecution based on what he said in his House testimony regarding his interactions with Trump about the Southern District of New York. If you go back and you look at that testimony and read it, it's very unclear. As I've, as I've said before, the quality of a perjury prosecution often rests on the quality and precision of the questions being asked. And without disparaging members of the House of Representatives, some of those questions were not very pointedly asked. And there's a lot of wiggle room on what Whitaker said, and I don't think it rises to the level of being able to charge a false statement. In part, that's because we don't know all the facts. And the the article, while tantalizing, leaves a lot of open questions. Just one last thing before we get to the interview. At the end of the Q&A session on last week's podcast, I ended by saying, you know, I could go on and on answering more questions, but I really need to get back to my $50,000 large room-sized sophisticated golf simulator. That was a joke. I do not have a golf simulator. If I did, I wouldn't brag about it. I don't even play golf. That was a reference to a story that was breaking a few minutes before I walked into the studio that reported that Donald Trump, the current president of the United States, had installed a high-end $50,000 golf simulator in the White House. And so my joke was in reference to that. A few folks took me seriously and thought that it showed bad form to be bragging about my wealth and talking about a golf simulator when there are so many people who have so many troubles in the world. So anyway, I may be tongue-in-cheek again in the future, but I'll do my best to be more clear. My guest this week is Christiane Amanpour, a British-Iranian correspondent. Amanpour is the chief international anchor for CNN and host of CNN's nightly interview program, Amanpour. She is also the host of Amanpour & Company, a collaboration between PBS, CNN, and WNET. In 2018, she deviated a little from her usual beat and hosted a new show called Christiane Amanpour, Sex and Love Around the World. Inspired by her friendship with Anthony Bourdain, Amanpour visited six cities around the world to find out how people explore intimacy across cultures. In this belated Valentine's Day gift to you all, I speak with her about why foreign correspondents make the best anchors, the battle against fake news, and of course, sex and love. That's coming up. Stay tuned. U.S. job growth is the strongest that it's been in recent years. With so many people applying for jobs, hiring the right candidate can be hard. But there's an oasis where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place for growing businesses to connect with the best candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com Preet. When you post open positions through ZipRecruiter, the site sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. And with its powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes for you. It finds the best people with the right experience and invites them to apply. As applications pour in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one to spotlight your top candidates. That way, you'll never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post to the site find a qualified candidate within the first day. Want to try it for free? Well, now you can at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-R-E-E-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet.
ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Christian Amanpour, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a great pleasure, Preet. How's your new show going? I think really well, but you'd have to ask the viewers. But by all uh, accounts, it's going really well, and I'm very, very, very happy about it. It's in practically all the PBS households and markets, and it's doing incredibly well according to the metrics they have, but more to the point according to the response that I get. And I just think and I hope that it's because these times are demand and require, you know, some really deep conversation and not necessarily too much shouting, too much talking head. You know, we try to take on the the breaking news of the day and the main news of the day, but to go behind it as well and sort of dig down and have real conversations on the real sort of policies and and substance that affects people on a day-to-day basis. Well, I think that I think it's terrific and I think that you do a terrific job. My question though is why isn't there more programming like that? You know, there's a lot of programming. <laughs> It's it's three <laughs> minutes with a, with a panel of seven. Nobody ever digs deep. What's I'm not the, the one to ask about that. <laughs> You're going to have to ask the bosses. I'm just a humble, uh, what can I say, a humble servant. <laughs> why can't you become, with all this experience and all these connections, why can't you become a media titan? And uh, start you know and, what? And start have you seen what's happening with the media titans right now? Wow. <laughs> I'm happy just to be a good old foot soldier <laughs> in the trenches. That's who I am. It's what I am. I'm a reporter. I always have been. And perhaps, honestly, perhaps that is what I'm transferring to, to my studio show. The fact that I've been there, I've seen it, I've done it. I continue to be out there talking to the people, whether the the civilians or the policymakers or whoever it is that are the real players. And so I think that hopefully people see a sense of experience that I bring to the table, a a very, very, very high BS meter, a very, very high level of refusing to take no for an answer and demanding a question to be answered for the people who are, I like to say, my constituents. And I don't say that in any arrogant way, but the people who, you know, turn on the TV or turn on their laptop or their phone or whatever platform they're using to try to figure out what we're saying on on, on the show uh, on any given night. So I take it very seriously. I don't sort of, you know, I don't think people are, are watching or listening to the podcast just because, you know, there's so much option. There's so much alternative out there. There's so much, you know, product out there that uh, I just want people to know that when they turn to me, they can get the real deal and they know that I'm being honest with them and as truthful as I can. And I'm not mixing neutrality with truth. And I'm not pretending to equate two very different things. I insist on being truthful and not neutral. And I hope that shows. We're going to get to truthful, but not neutral. But let me ask you this. Do you, do you think that folks underestimate what the public wants, that they, they emphasize too much entertainment rather than understand that lots and lots of people want to be informed as well? I think maybe that was the case, you know, in the past several years. But I do believe that since we've uh, entered this vortex of a different kind of politics, I think many, many people are actually looking for real news, facts, truth, Clearly, there's a lot who don't really care, who buy into conspiracy theories, who still go to Facebook and other places where they can find fake news. Um, I do think that people have to take on a responsibility of their own right now. It's not enough just to say, oh, well, I saw that online or I saw that on social media or I heard that on the radio or blah, blah, blah. People in this environment, if they really want to be informed, if they really want to be safe and secure, 
by knowing the facts and the truth, have to also take on the responsibility themselves as buyers, if you like, as, as, as consumers. They would in any other aspect, right? Whether they were searching for a good loan at the bank or a mortgage or the best buy on a car or whatever it might be, the school for their children. They go out and they shop around and they get the best that they can. And they must do that right now when it comes to information because we are being inundated by charlatans who don't give a damn about the effect they're having on people and they just care about clickbait and just care about racking up their own dollars, their own profit margins. It is a disgrace. It is immoral. It is the marketplace. So I think that people need to be responsible and choose their destination carefully and, you know, come to people like us who are tried and true and tested and proven brand names in this sphere. You said a couple of minutes ago something that I think is very important, that you have a high BS meter. How did you develop that? And how do, how do ordinary people develop a good BS meter? Well, Preet, I think you obviously in your career have a very highly developed sense of <laughs> what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what's false. We prosecuted a lot of bad people. And I think that it's a question of what you choose to do with your, with your career, with your life, how you decide to interpret that. And mine is in reporting. It's in news. It's in journalism. And that means we are trained and it's in our DNA to make sure that we are the purveyors, not just of the truth, but we can, we can extract the truth and discard the, the BS because of our experience, because of what we've learned, because of how long we've been in the field, because of the number of people who we've spoken to, um, the amount of research we've done. I mean, this isn't just a, roll in and uh, and roll out kind of job. It's not just punching a clock and sort of, you know, reading a script and not really, you know, having any involvement with it. For those of us who have achieved a certain level, it really is because I think, and I like to think anyway, that we do our homework and we do our research. I mean, it's almost scientific in that in that regard. I often say that Every day for me is like doing a PhD thesis. You know, I'm, I'm having to interview all these people. It's not like I'm an expert in all these topics, but I have to really make myself one. And when I sit in front of a world leader, I have to know as much about him or her as they do or as their, you know, as their children or their parents do. And that takes a lot of research and a huge team. You know, we have a very, very dedicated team, researchers, producers, etc., so you mentioned a principle that's clearly near and dear to your heart, and so much so that it is your pinned tweet, truthful, not neutral. Mm. <laughs> Can you develop that a little bit more? Because it might be confusing to folks. I don't think it should be confusing. There's the truth, and there are facts, and there's empirical evidence. That's truth, and that's being truthful when you seek and report in those parameters. Neutrality is often confused by people for objectivity. People sometimes think that our golden rule, which is objectivity, means neutrality. It does not. Neutrality is when you essentially put two opposing thoughts on the same platform and give equal weight to two opposing thoughts. Now, sometimes you can, but often you cannot. And let's just take genocide, for instance, which is where I learned my craft. There is no moral or factual equivalence between the gross violation of humanitarian law and mass killing of people based on their ethnicity or their religion. There's no equating the perpetrators with the victims. 
And I found that out in Bosnia and in Sarajevo during the siege during the 90s because world leaders tried to say that all sides were equally guilty as a way of not intervening and not having to take the uncomfortable but legally binding steps to stop ethnic cleansing and genocide. So I learned that really, really quickly, that objectivity means giving all sides a hearing, but not conflating all sides and making them neutral or morally or factually equivalent. So I learned that very, very quickly. And you can, you know, transfer that that doctrine, if you like, to anything of massive importance. For instance, climate change. Let's just take that. Something that is an existential threat to our civilization. By the way, not to the planet. The planet will continue to exist. Our civilization may very well not. So there's no equivalence between the science, the overwhelming 99% of science, and the very tiny 0.1%, I'm making that up, but tiny, 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 tiny minority of deniers. And so, again, you are truthful when you report the facts about climate change and humans' involvement in that, and you are not neutral. You don't say, on the one hand, the seas are rising and Tangier Island in the Chesapeake Bay may sink into oblivion in 25 to 50 years, and 700 people will lose their livelihoods and potentially their lives and certainly their homes. You don't draw an equivalence with that fact, and those who say, oh, well, you know, we can't do anything about it. It's got nothing to do with us and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I I feel that this is really important, particularly in today's age, where unfortunately the line between truth and falsehood has been blurred to an extent that I never, never, never believed I would have to witness and work around in my lifetime and in my career. It is really a dreadful thing when people say to me, that we just don't know where to find the truth. I mean, it's like a dagger to my heart. It just is like a dagger to my heart. Whose fault is it that we're in this predicament that's greater than... I don't than know the- whose fault is it. I mean, I think it's a, it's a growing phenomenon that's, that's come to a head right now. Don't be neutral on whose fault it is. No, no, I'm not neutral on whose fault it is. I, I think it's a, it's a sort of a big bowl, a cauldron that's been stirred over the years. And I think that what happened now is that the falsehood and the fakeness has been, you know, completely and utterly exponentially increased by the reach of social media and by the internet and social media platforms, which refuse to accept the responsibility that they are media platforms and they're not just exchange networks. They're not just, you know, publishing outlets. They should be bound by the same constraints on truth and falsehood that we are as journalists. That's one thing. Social media, the same. Um, But then you have governments, including governments and administrations in the most developed democracies in the world, not to mention those which are dictatorships and authoritarians who don't give a damn about the truth, but in places where our constitution calls for the freedom of expression and that, you know, perpetrating lies and falsehoods are correctly punished under the law. When administrations and leaders of of the United States or some European nations and others that call themselves democratic and say that they are proud to be a constitutional nation, that's a problem. So the problem is is many, many fold. And I think that we all need to sort of, you know, take a real deep breath and recommit ourselves to protecting 
it's not just our livelihoods or our profession, it's the working of our democracy and of our civil society. The difference between democracy and dictatorship is the difference between truth and lies. And it's not a hard fact to grasp. It's only, you know, 25, 30 years ago since the wall came down, the Berlin Wall, and we knew what happened behind the Berlin Wall. It was based on lies, lies, lies. The Soviet Union, the East European Soviet bloc, and that's how they kept that authoritarian dictatorial system together. The minute the truth was let out and people could breathe the oxygen of truth and see the light of truth, the whole world changed. And we need to remember that. Can you broadcast and tell the truth through storytelling or is there a danger in narrative? And I think you've said something like this. There's a danger in narrative that causes people to leave out facts because they don't fit a narrative. Is there a problem there? Well, I mean, look, I think those people who choose to leave out facts and choose to distort the narrative, yeah, there's a danger there. But I mean, my my experience has been at a mainstream network, which is bound by the established rules of the game. I have spent my life working inside those parameters and therefore all my storytelling has been like that as well. I go out and I get the facts and I tell the story and I don't leave out inconvenient truths to create a different narrative to suit mine or anybody else's political view. I'm not political. I don't go out to cover war and peace, genocide, famine, uh, civil you know, conflict, religious conflict, terrorism, climate. I don't go out to cover those according to somebody's political narrative. I cover them as they are, uh, life as it is, truth as it is, fact as it is. And, you know, the people who say that, that, oh, that's not possible, that everybody's compromised, that everybody has their, you know, their own context. Well, people do have their own context. But if you are a professional in this craft, your own personal context is second to your professional duty and your professional guidelines. And that's not a hard concept to grasp. You were very good friends with the late, great Anthony Bourdain. I was, yes. Who, whose loss was, has been mourned by lots and lots of folks. He one time called you a badass. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that, but that's great. Are you? I guess I am, if Anthony <laughs> Bourdain says I am. <laughs> uh, you know, I wear it as a badge of honor if he said that. Look, he, he was a good friend. I wish I'd known him even better. I wish I'd been able to help. I just feel terrible that, that he couldn't turn to his friends in his last hour of need. I feel terrible about it because he was, I always want to say, is a great, great person and a great force of nature. And I think that he came from, you know, a, a very interesting background, partly very troubled background. He's been very open about his own struggles with substances and abuse and how he came out of that and created this phenomenal, uh, what's the right word? It's not persona. This just this phenomenal gift to the world by who he was. I don't think he was a was an actor or inauthentic or fake. He was really himself. And I think that's what resonated. And he had such a curiosity and such an interest about everything that he touched, whether it was food, whether it was his teams in the kitchen when he was a chef, whether it was being, you know, one of the kitchen staff, you know, very menial jobs in his first restaurant jobs, to then branching out as a, as a really important writer and, and then an important broadcaster. 
you know, I think people could see that he was the real deal and he was authentic and he was colorful. And, you know, of course he had his own perspective, but, you know, I don't think he lied about what went in <laughs> to the recipes he was producing in his restaurant or to the stories he was telling in Parts Unknown in the last part of his career. And I think that's why he resonated so much. And that's why his death is a great, 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 um, you know, punch to the gut and leaves a huge vacuum and a void where he should still be. Um, badass. He was a badass. And, you know, <laughs> well, it takes, I'm a it, badass too. Somebody called to no me one. OG the other day. Do you know what that is? No. Apparently it's original gangster. That's pretty cool too. That 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 might be that might be better than badass. Well, one of the reasons that he might have said this, and that people think this uh, about you, is that you cut your teeth on and spent a lot of time in war zones. You know, the most difficult place to report and to be, and you seem not to have done that reluctantly. You seem to have embraced it and loved it. You once said, "I sleep better in Sarajevo than anywhere else," and I wonder if that's because there's a particular mattress that they have there. I'd like to think it was the mattress. In fact, I'm going to stick with that thought, Preet, because it is <laughs> not because I'm addicted to war or I get off on, you know, on, on this stuff. And it irritates me that mostly men who write about war coverage keep talking about the addictive drug of war and the, you know, the sort of getting off on all this misery and how much it's better to be out there than it is at home. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a fairly different um, interpretation. Clearly, we all have adrenaline. You can't go into a war zone if you don't have the adrenaline that arms you against the danger and prepares you for fight or flight. So, yes, we all have a surge of adrenaline in order to keep ourselves alive and to keep doing the job. But as much as I said that about Sarajevo, it's probably true. I was young. I was exhausted. Every day we went out with our teams and put our lives on the line and um, came back and just flopped down and, and you know, f sunk into oblivion, ready to get up to, for the next morning. But I think that I'm really, I, I still consider myself that reporter. I still don't think of myself as a presenter or an anchor or anything. I still call myself a correspondent because those were the formative and fundamental years and fundamental experience of my professional life. And I honestly don't believe that I could do what I'm doing now if I didn't have that. I, do, I, I don't think I could do it with, with any sense of authenticity or grounding. And, and security, you know, I need to feel secure when I'm interviewing all these world leaders that I actually know what I'm talking about, or at least I can ask them informed questions, or at least try to seek relevant information. And I feel that if I can try to do that job, it's because of my training in the field. And that will never leave me. And it's the most important uh, work that I've ever done. In fact, it's the most important thing that I've ever done, bar having my son. He's the most important thing in my life. And as a result, I kind of tailored my career to make sure that A, I stayed alive as a mother, and B, I was there as a mother. I think that you're, that you're correct that the anchors and presenters who earlier in their career experience the reporting life do a better job ultimately. They ask the better questions, they're better grounded. Let me ask you to, to explain to folks something uh, on a pragmatic level. So you go into a war zone, Bosnia, uh, Rwanda, Afghanistan, wherever, and you're a reporter. You're not part of the military. What precautions do your media outlets take? Do you have 
armed escorts? Do you have special phones? Do you have uh, regular check-ins? Do you do you have a, a speed dial to the embassy if there is a U.S. embassy in the area? What what do you do to make sure that you're safe in those places? Well, to be honest, you know, my career has sort of spanned the gamut of of all those things that you say. When when I first started, you know, the first Gulf War was my first big story. So that was 1990, 91. And we were part of a massive group of foreign correspondents who landed in Saudi Arabia uh, to cover the U.S. military and the massive coalition that President George H.W. Bush had had gathered to, to push back Saddam Hussein from invading Kuwait. And Therefore, there was a lot of um, connection between us and the military. We were reporting on the military. Sometimes we got them angry because of what we reported about their preparedness or what the troops were saying, waiting for the build up to the war. But nonetheless, we were there. And by and large, they kind of knew where we were. So there was that kind of security. Also, we were kind of obvious because it was one of the first places where we had this amazing satellite technology that kicked in on a big, big level. And I think that's where CNN became dominant in the public consciousness because, you know, it was the first, really the first time war was broadcast in real time into people's living rooms. So in that regard, we were quite safe. The worst thing that could happen was that we could either be caught in the crossfire somewhere or as one of my colleagues from CBS, uh, well, a group of my colleagues from CBS, they were captured by crossing the line unknowingly, and they were captured by the Iraqi troops, and they were held for the rest of the war. So those those were the, the difficulties then. Then carrying on Bosnia, there was no security, no safety. Bosnia was where reporters started being deliberately targeted. No longer were we caught in the crossfire and accidentally hurt or killed, but deliberately targeted. And that was very, very troubling. And I lost many friends to snipers' bullets and to shelling. And I had many, many friends and colleagues wounded. And each time I say this, I'm sorry, you're going to hear me bang on the desk and bang on the wood. I thank God that I survived and that my team survived. Um, But that was a very scary development. And only after a good handful of people had been killed did our organizations start stepping up the security. So we began to get armored vehicles that we had you know, tape with TV. We began to get bulletproof vests, then later helmets. And then later, 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 after 9-11, they started with the, you know, certain amount of security traveling with us. Um, because then you, you know, you got to the the militants in Iraq, which then morphed into ISIS, who were really not just deliberately firing at you from afar, but now coming up to you, grabbing you and slitting your throats you know, and kidnapping you for money and that kind of thing. So as the danger increased, the level of protection and security by our companies increased as well. Which is good. You have interviewed a lot of people, including uh, heads of state uh, over the course of the years. And you mentioned earlier in this interview that there are certain kinds of people, dictators, who don't care about truth at all. And you've interviewed some of them too. Two questions. One is, do you have a favorite dictator interview that you've done? (laughs) And then second, more substantively, do you prepare differently for that, for that kind of interview and more at length for that kind of interview, knowing that the person you're interviewing cares less about truth? Uh, yes and no. I think from depending on who you're talking to, you're trying to extract different things. And then also you have to think about 
your audience, what's important for them to know, um, which might not be always what I want to know. I guess my, <laughs> my, my favorite authoritarian, because he was elected democratically, who has a hard time with the truth, would be um, President Erdogan of Turkey. When I say favorite, my favorite to challenge, because I do regularly, and I just put out the words and confront him with the things he said, the things that have happened. Um, and I do quite like seeing the sort of contortions that various um, uh, of my interlocutors twist themselves in, <laughs> trying to extract themselves <laughs> and, and, and carrying on with just, you know, claiming what they're claiming. I just sometimes know that I'm never going to get them to, to change or to bend, but I have to at least put forth the facts so that they know that I know that they know that I know and that they know that the world knows now. <laughs> but is there real value? And can I just push back a second? If that's going to be the nature of the interview, is there, explain the value and I don't do it for a long time. Yeah. I don't spend a whole interview doing that. Yeah. There's no value in constantly going on and on and on and on and 50 different times asking the same question. There's no value. Um, but I do think there is some value in getting the lay of the land of that of that particular person. And I mean, I mentioned Erdogan, but there are many, many like it. I've interviewed uh, Robert Mugabe of, uh, of Zimbabwe. I've, I've interviewed the, the world's longest serving dictator, the President Obiang of Equatorial Guinea. And I'm telling you, those guys were quite scary because they come in in full military regalia right. with all their military henchmen standing around them, practically armed, and I'm still trying to ask them these questions, and I'm sometimes worried whether I'm going to get hauled out of the seat and, you know, defenestrated, as they say. But anyway, is there a value? Up to a point, there isn't a value in doing it over and over and over and over again and sitting with the same person and getting the same answer over and over and over again. So I, I take your point on that. What was it like to be present for the trial of Saddam Hussein? Oh, that was remarkable. I can still remember it as if it was yesterday. And it wasn't even the beginning. Of, well, it was the beginning of the trial. And, and you'll know much more about the procedures than I do. But he was brought in for his first arraignment, essentially. And this was after he hadn't been seen by anyone. He had just been yanked out of this, what do they call it, a foxhole or something by the US military some months previously. He was completely disheveled and bedraggled still, although the US had, had found some suit for him, some kind of weird dark pinstripe suit and a white shirt with no tie. And the thing that I'll never forget was managing to force myself into that Jerry Rigg courtroom uh, in, a pre, in a former Saddam Hussein palace, no less, that the US uh, was running there. And um, and the new transitional authorities in Iraq, because they didn't want us in, they just wanted pool. And I managed to force myself in there and report it for CNN. But the most startling recollection I have is of suddenly being told, okay, he's coming in. And all I could hear, because the door was open, were these chains clanking. He was still chained. You know, his, his hands and his feet were chained, and he was walking into this courtroom-esque and suddenly this person who had been so terrifying, remember he had committed genocide against um, the Kurds in the 80s. He had invaded Iran and used chemical weapons. He had terrorized, tortured, imprisoned, and put in gulags his own people. He had threatened the West over and over again. This monster who had been, who had been so bigged up for all these years suddenly arrives as this pathetic shadow of a person into this courtroom. 
But I also will never forget, he still had a measure of pride left. I remember the first question was, what is your name? And he said, my name is Saddam Hussein, president of the Republic of Iraq. I'm thinking, boy, you know, (laughs) you still got it. Are you still trying? So it was quite dramatic. He'd been talking to Baghdad Bob. Let me, this is a radical shift because we're running out of time and this will sound to the uninitiated like an impertinent question. When I say, uh, Christian, tell me about sex and love. <laughs> Not impertinent at all, Preet. Um, There's a show. You did a, so, you did a wonderful show that's, that you can I watch on Netflix did. called Sex and Love. Around the World. Around the with World. With Christian Amanpour. Um, but I was just talking about it. This was Anthony Bourdain and I came up with this idea. I'd come up with this idea to try to delve deep into people's personal lives and their intimate lives. And it was really based on just a thought that flashed by me when I was getting ready for work one day. Um, uh, How do all these war refugees, particularly the women and the young girls, how do they come out from their homes in one country and end up in containers or tents cheek by jowl with thousands and thousands of other people and A, maintain their humanity, their privacy, their intimate lives. How do they have sex in a container? You know what I mean by a container, these these metal containers that refugees get stuffed into. um, And that's their, you know, that's their lodging for the next foreseeable future. But they don't have bedrooms in there. It's all one room. And many of them have multiple children. How do husbands and wives, you know, conduct their intimate lives? What what do these mums tell their girls about sex and love and and what they're going to be confronting? What, what are the birds and the bees stories? Anyway, I brought that idea to Tony Bourdain and he thought it was a great idea. And so we took it to CNN and his um, company, obviously they were intimately involved with CNN, produced it for me. We did a series of six in six different cities, Tokyo, Shanghai, Ghana, uh, Berlin, Beirut, and Delhi. And we, I looked at it very much through uh, a woman's lens. It was an intimate look at women and what empowers them sexually, emotionally, how do they get their own pleasure, how do they make it clear what they want, can they, how do they date, what about in traditional societies where there's been no dating because it's all been arranged marriages. So it, 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 it sort of broadened from my initial idea but I'm so happy that it aired on CNN and that it aired, is airing on Netflix and that I get a lot of people now saying, wow, I just saw your, and I'm thinking, what interview? And they say, sex and love. And I'm so happy <laughs> right. that young people are connecting with it. And um, I really, again, thank Tony Bourdain for believing in it and making it happen for CNN, for commissioning it and doing it. And it was a great pleasure to do. Christian Amanpour, our time has been too short. When the original gangster has more time, we'll do it. We'll do a longer interview. Thank you so much. <laughs> I didn't even know what it meant. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Christian. So this week, I want to end with a comment about immigration, which remains much in the news and heated rhetoric from this White House surrounding the issue of the declaration of a national emergency and the building of the wall and negative connotations about immigration continue to be bandied about by the president, by his advisor, Stephen Miller, and I think it's noxious. And I think that in part, obviously, because I myself am a proud immigrant from a family of immigrants. And this last Monday on President's Day, I saw on the internet uh, a speech by Ronald Reagan, which I tweeted about. And it's literally the last 
address he gave as President of the United States on January 19th of 1989. And though I have a lot of problems with a lot of things that Ronald Reagan did, um, I am not a Reagan Republican, and I think many of his policies harmed lots of folks, especially in communities of color and in other places in our country. I was really struck, having not seen it in a long time, by the way in which he talked about the importance of immigration and the way in which he talked about how America should always welcome people from all corners of the earth, from every country, unlike the current president of the United States. And a couple of the passages I think are worth listening to and thinking about. In that final speech by Ronald Reagan, he said, And since this is the last speech that I will give as president, I think it's fitting to leave one final thought, an observation about a country which I love. It was stated best in a letter I received not long ago. A man wrote me and said, You can go to live in France, but you cannot become a Frenchman. You can go to live in Germany or Turkey or Japan, but you cannot become a German, a Turk, or Japanese. But anyone from any corner of the earth can come to live in America and become an American. Reagan also said this. Thanks to each wave of new arrivals to this land of opportunity, we're a nation forever young, forever bursting with energy and new ideas, and always on the cutting edge, always leading the world to the next frontier. This quality is vital to our future as a nation. If we ever close the door to new Americans, our leadership in the world would soon be lost. Some folks have suggested, from time to time, when we refer to prior presidents with whom we might have disagreed, like Ronald Reagan, I've heard a couple of people say, stop lionizing him. I was not lionizing Ronald Reagan. Among other things, I was showing the contrast between the rhetoric out of the current Republican Party head, Donald Trump, and the former highly successful Republican Party head, Ronald Reagan, on this issue of immigration and how we talk about immigration, how we talk about people who come to this country, and that it is a strength, not a weakness. And I think that's important. And this has happened on other occasions too. When I or someone else point to a sentiment or a statement by Ronald Reagan or John McCain or George W. Bush, people with whom we might disagree and people who may have done a lot of damage to the country, it is not to lionize them. It's to show that, you know what? Sometimes they said things that were important and they said things that unified the country and didn't foster hate tried to bring people together. That's just a fact. And it is so different from the kind of, you know, vicious, noxious rhetoric that so often, especially on immigration, comes out of this White House. There was once a pretty decent consensus about how we thought about and talked about immigration. And we don't have that anymore. And I think that's a problem. And I think the message and the quality of the message and the delivery of the message by Ronald Reagan on his last day in office is something worth noting. Among other things, it's a celebration of wonderful oratory, which we don't have anymore. An explanation of an American ideal, which we don't really have anymore. A hopeful message and an inclusive sentiment, much of which we don't have anymore. So to the extent that I miss those things, it's worth seeing how someone who claims to have been the leader of his party talked about it in contrast to how we talk about it today. And you know what? I'm one of those people who think that rhetoric is important. Policy, obviously, is the most important. But proper, inclusive, thoughtful rhetoric on issues, whether it's immigration or something else, allows people to have 
the space to disagree with each other respectfully on particular points of policy. And that's missing. I find that to be missing in the country right now. And of course it's true. If Donald Trump proposed horrible, toxic immigration policies, but spoke nicely about immigration generally, that wouldn't solve the problem. And that would still be a big deal. But you know what? Hateful rhetoric is bad in itself. Hateful rhetoric makes policy more difficult. Hateful rhetoric makes unity more difficult. And I think Donald Trump and others could take a page from prior presidents, both Republican and Democratic, who talked in a way that tried to bring people together. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Christian Amanpour. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Stay Tuned is produced in association with Stitcher. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.